0: Hey there, before we dive into this episode of the Deeper Podcast, I wondered if you'd do something for me. We're always looking to make this podcast better, more engaging, more relevant, and guess what? You hold the key to help us do just that. I mean, there are a hundred of you, more than that, actually listening each week, and we don't exactly know who you are. I mean, just the other week, I received someone from my home country of Canada, a colleague who's been listening to the podcast congratulations on your ordination by the way you know who you are and i was like wow the reach of this thing is really big and i wouldn't have known if someone didn't reach out so that's why we've created this little survey well it's not just the only reason but there's a few reasons we'd love for you to take a few minutes to fill out you can find it online at foothillsu.org podcast survey yep that's foothillsu.org podcast survey it's simple it's quick this is your chance to tell us what you love to hear, what makes it meaningful to you, what, we, what you wish we'd do less of, what you'd want to hear. I mean, really anything. We genuinely want to hear what you think. Grab a cup of coffee, put your feet up, take a few minutes, just let us know how we're doing. That's foothillsuu.org slash podcast survey. Thanks for doing that. It really means the world. Let's dive into the show. Hey there. Welcome to the Deeper Podcast, a podcast that's all about how we love the hell out of this world. Bringing a little bit more courage into our daily lives in ways that make small and meaningful progress towards that beautiful vision of just and beloved community. I'm Reverend Sean, one of your hosts, and today on the podcast, I confess to you all of my sins. Well, not all of them, just one teenage indiscretion that really taught me a lot about what belonging means, about what true relationship means, what it means to be able to be forgivable in a deep, like, accountable sense, and how that is related to this bigger question of belonging. You know, we live in this pandemic, epidemic of isolation and loneliness. I mean, so many people are lonely right now, disconnected from a relationship, and it gets this vicious cycle where the more lonely you feel, the harder it is for you to get out of that and actually make the connections that will make you feel less lonely. And here we are trying to figure out what to do, and actually one of the best things we can do is start to create connections with each other i heard this great phrase once which is that you don't try you know the way to build a friendship is to be a friend and that's what i think when we think about these questions of belonging in this series sit by me it's not like how do we do this it's how do we embody doing this with each other
1: <sighs> without further ado let's dive into the message
0: Have you ever screwed up so bad you wondered if you'd finally crossed the point of no return? Like, messed up so big that you felt for sure this time you would be cast out of the circle of belonging for real.
1: Made a mistake and been like, "Uh uh-oh. There's no recovering from this. Because none of you raised your hands. I guess it's only been me. When I was in high school, I almost burnt down a UNESCO World Heritage Site.
0: Now, both my parents moved to Canada from the United Kingdom when they were children which meant that my family was not primarily my biological relatives, but the circle of friendship that they had gathered around themselves. I grew up and came of age with the children of these adults that really became my family. And one summer in my teenage years, I happened to go on a trip with some of this wonderful circle of humans without my parents. Now, going on a trip like that wasn't out of the ordinary. This was, in fact, my family. There was Heather, my kind of second mother figure, Allison and Scott, the kind of wacky aunts and uncles, and a bunch of us teens, Ben, Hannah, and a few others. And together, we piled in the dust bucket, the affectionate name for the old Toyota van, and drove a couple of hours to the magical place called Dinosaur Provincial Park. We called it the dust bucket because when you hit the seats, plumes of dust would come out. And in the few last years of its life, you could actually look down and see the road flying down from your seat. Now, the joke in the prairies is that if your dog ran away, you'd be able to see them for three days. And it's that flat in Alberta where I grew up driving to dinosaur it's flat very flat until all of a sudden you begin to descend into the badlands the land seems to be split open torn asunder by the moment and geological time and you descend into the valley of rocky hoodoos designated a world heritage site in 1979 over 500 species of dinosaurs have been recovered on the site and as a child, it was a place of wonder. You could spend hours climbing rocky ridges, finding caves and passages that snaked their way through the desert terrain. There's this tiny creek flowed through the whole thing that was warm enough to just paddle in all day. Now on that trip, beside the usual crew, Ben had invited a friend from school. We'll call him Brian. Now, Brian and I didn't jive. The whole trip, he carried around a lighter that he flicked on and off constantly. One of those Zippo lighters that make that kind of satisfying clip. I always got the sense that within Brian, there was some inner turmoil. Let's be honest, inside most teams is a little bit of inner turmoil. Or a lot. I would say in most humans, there's a degree of turmoil that's just part of the human condition. But for Brian, it was manifesting differently than me. So for me, my inner turmoil as a teenager manifested in generally vigilant rule following. Brian went in a different direction. Brian didn't follow rules. Now, I will say that I don't mind bending a few rules, but there's always a few rules that I would keep to, right? Wearing a helmet, asking for consent, always deleting your browser history, and oh, I don't know, don't light the tinder-dry grass of a world-renowned habitat on fire in the middle of a drought for fun. Here's the scene. It's just us teens hanging out beside the creek. We're in sight of the main campground, but a little bit around the bend. And suddenly I hear that crack snap of the lighter go silent. Odd, I looked over at Brian. He's crouched down. His face is a mixture of delight and panic because before him, a fire is spreading slowly, consuming the low grasses near the bank of the creek. We all panic Frantically, three of us race over, putting it out with our shoes. The flames were small enough that it left us mostly singed, and we got it out in a matter of seconds, and we told him in no uncertain terms to cut
1: it out. But we turned around, and we heard the crack snap of the lighter once more. And this time, it really catches. The drought, the tinder grasses,
0: suddenly a one square meter of grassy embankment is going up in flames. Now there was this moment when we saw it. This moment where all of us looked at each other and seemed to make this unspoken decision. We're not going to run back for help. We're not going to run away and panic. We're going to try to fight this fire ourselves. Now, 16s does not a fire brigade make. But somehow we improvised. Water from the creek in ball caps was tossed on the blaze. Shirts were used to whip out the flames. My memory is a little bit of a blur. What I remember is the waves of heat blasting us and the smell of burnt plastic from our shoes that were melted under the heat. But somehow, in a matter of I don't know how long, to be honest, we got it out, leaving two meters of scorch as the only evidence of our misdeeds. It was then that we made our second unspoken decision. We looked at each other, and an understanding passed between all of us. We were not gonna tell anyone about this. The gravity of what just happened was not lost on me. The crushing weight of the possible ecological and human costs of our actions seared into me, and we all scattered in different directions to create an air of deniability. We all wondered if our fast action meant that our guilt would be the only lasting ramification of our actions. So when we filtered back into camp, enough time from the other, and we were asked about the column of smoke that was spotted along the riverbank, we all denied everything. Yes, even the usual rule-abiding soul of myself went along with it, Without thinking. Heather, my second mother, looked at me. Her eyes disbelieved our lies. Asked me directly, do you know anything about this? No. I lied. I know not. It was when the park ranger pulled into our campsite a half an hour later, and we learned that two hikers up on the ridge had witnessed our makeshift fire brigade, that the ground seemed to drop out from below me. It was then that I saw in the eyes of all of these adults that I had known since I was a child this deep disappointment. My lies shattering the trust earned over years. The image they had in me, the trust they had in me, the faith they had in me, they looked crushed. And I felt it. The situation was only lightened by the fact that, and I don't know this for sure, but it's a pretty good guess, the park ranger seemed like the type of guy who might have started a few fires himself when he was a youth. So we got a lecture, he spared us any legal action, but instead of, we had to write an essay about the impact of fire on the natural environment, which of course I did the minute I got home with multiple sources cited.
1: After the lecture
0: was over, eyes still casting their heartbreak our way, I left the campsite. I walked into the dust, climbed, to the top of a hoodoo and played dead. I wouldn't say I was suicidal in that moment, but I would say that I would have gladly accepted the ground just swallowing me home. Why didn't I do more to stop? Why did I laugh? Why didn't I ask for help? There was this feeling of betraying myself, caught in the grips of fear, this unspoken pressures of conformity, the blinders of my teenage brain. not being able to see a way of recovering from this mistake. It felt unrecoverable.
1: My worthiness sullen. It felt as if I didn't deserve to belong anymore.
0: My guilt about my actions crystallized into shame about myself. Now I imagine I'm not alone in this room at having found oneself Doubting if we are worthy of belonging. A lot of us can pile up evidence really high of our own inadmissibility into the club of the worthy because of what we've done or not done. If only they knew what I did, I'd never be welcome again, we might think. Or if only they knew who I really am, I'd never really belong. Maybe there is this one moment, one action that you can point to that is the source of this corrosive story within you, or maybe it's the sum total of small moments, each corroding your sense of worthiness. The things that you said or did to a friend, the time you didn't follow through, when you said you would, when you didn't try your best, your struggle to kick that habit that you know is killing you. All of these feelings of shame, unworthiness, right? Vivek Murthy, the Surgeon General, in his book together, they conspire to disconnect, from one another, and fuel a deep loneliness. And together he writes, shame and fear conspire to turn this sense of disconnection into a self-perpetuating condition. It triggers self-doubt, which in turn lowers self-esteem and discourages us from reaching out for help. Over time, this vicious cycle may convince us that we don't matter to anyone, that we are unworthy of love, driving us ever inward and away from the very relationships that we need the most, especially in those moments when we're lying on the hill thinking that we are irredeemable. You know, each of these stories that we hold of ourselves, it challenges the core conviction of our faith that we are inherently worthy. We say it every Sunday that each of us is inherently worthy of love and belonging no matter what. Inherently worthy.
1: You, worthy of love and belonging, full stop, no exceptions. That's the universal salvation that we preach from this church. It's not only for all of us, but for all parts of us, too. But here's the thing about love and belonging. You can't belong in the abstract. Belonging is not
0: theoretical. Love is not an abstract concept. Belonging is made, only made real when real people, real flawed other people, embrace you, invite you into the dance of affirmation and inclusion through real, tangible actions. You can't belong in the abstract. Belonging is not theoretical, which is to say that we literally belong each other. Every day, we belong and unbelong each other. That is a power that each of us has, you and me. We belong each other in micro moments that can shift the trajectory of our very lives. Kristen Ivey writes, no one needs to be known by everyone, but everyone needs to be known by someone. Everyone needs to be known by someone. You, the person beside you, the person who stopped coming to church because they didn't trust they'd be welcome, the person that annoys you, the person you disagree with, pretty much everything they say, everyone. Everyone needs to be known by someone. Anastasio Bezo writing about parenting teens, but I think this is applicable to everyone, reminds us that what teens need is a cornerment. She writes, teens end up in unsafe relationships and dangerous spaces. They lose themselves in the wasteland of self-hate, making countless mistakes, and what they need is a corner man. In boxing, a corner man is the one person that's allowed in the ring with the boxer. A corner man tends wounds, wraps hands wraps hand before the next round, and importantly, single, signals to the referee to stop the pummeling when things get too bad. But here's the rub. The
1: boxer chooses their corner. The corner man
0: doesn't choose the boxer. When your teen missteps, blows it, vapes, needs a ride home after drinking, meets an online stranger or falls apart, Basil writes, the question for all of us is who do you want them to call to be in their corner? In the ring of life, we all need cornermen. No one needs to be known by everyone, but everyone needs to be known by someone. Everyone needs that person in their corner when it gets hard to show that tangible love that signals that we truly have a place in the circle of belonging. Now the ground beneath me had cooled as the Heat of the day had slowly leached into the darkening night and the sun had done its part and turned its attention westward. Lying on that ground, tears had come and gone. I needed a corner man in that moment, even as my shame would have revolted at the idea of being seen. I needed someone to answer the questions that had been racking their way through my being, the same ones that you might pose on your own dark nights, the gray days, the moments where you're feeling the fray of your connection to the fabric of love. Am I okay still? Am I still worthy? Is this the end of the story? Can
1: I be forgiven? But for us to truly trust
0: our corner man, like really trust them to know our limits, pull us out of the fight at the right moment, to tell us when to quit or when to push through, to know our tells before we do something stupid, it takes time, it takes investment for their love, their answers to those questions to penetrate, to get in here. We need the trust of relationships built like the layers of sedimentary rock, of having been known and seen for all the parts of us over time. For the dancers to penetrate, to get in here, we need the practice of love, not a love in theory, but a fleshy love incarnated in the loving gaze of a friend or the steady hand of a mentor, in the quiet words of counsel, the friendly outreach of a stranger, even the warmth of another's smile, or simply the presence of another bending down beside you to help you get out of the muck. It takes time. It takes those small incremental moves of friendship and conviction. It takes showing up for each other, not because it's convenient or because we want to, but because it's central to our own very survival. It takes a willingness to dive into the wreck, to the messiness of life's detritus, and find in, the, find in there the future composting away. It takes making it personal no longer content with a polite distance from one another or the shallows of small talk, but instead it requires a personal conviction to get close in so that we might be trusted somehow, sometime, maybe not now, maybe not even soon, but maybe in the future someone will see you and you will be the right person to invite into the ring, tape in hand, ready to face what's coming. That when disappointment, shame, and guilt, struggle, and disaster inevitably arrive on your shores, that someone might trust you with the answer to that tender question, do you know what I've done? And that you can respond not with shame or guilt, but love, compassion, and grace. Not a cheap grace of it's all going to be okay, but the real grace of no matter what comes next, I'll be here. Everyone needs to be known by someone, and the only way that we get to know someone is when we make it personal and step in.
1: I wonder who made it personal
0: for you. That teacher who learned your name and knew how to pronounce it the first time you corrected. Who knew your passions and saw the thing to give you to allow that stretch that ignited a fire of passion on you. Maybe the mentor at work or in the community who saw you struggling and showed up for you the first time, the third time, the fifth time. The time that you said, I don't really want you to show up, but I need you to. The friend who knew where you came from, what was going on in your life, and showed up with a meal, a hug, a listening ear over and over again a minister, a church member who saw the spark of potential in you and asked you to risk doing something new?
1: What did they do that allowed you to fill, form those layers of trust to build that rock of foundation of belonging? First, they remembered your name. They
0: learned about your interests and your passions. They stuck around to hear about what formed you into the person you have become. They loved you with all of your faults and your screw-ups. They saw something about your potential that you couldn't believe was true, but supported you into being.
1: Now, of course, you can't simply say to someone, Hi, I'm Sean. We don't know each other. I want to be in your corner. If someone says that to you, run away. Because you can't force relationships,
0: but you can invite and you can invest in them. In their book, it's personal, Kristen Ivey, Virginia Ward, and Reggie Joyner share five questions that form the milestones of the journey of connection, and I think we have a slide. I preached a sermon using these questions in 2019. And uh, we made little cards with these questions on them, and I still keep it in my wallet. The first question, do you know my name? I don't know if you've ever walked into church and someone said, hey, first name. And you're like, whoa, you know my name? It communicates value, right? When someone knows our name, that we're maybe worth remembering. Do you know what matters to me? When I know what matters to you, that communicates a sense of friendship that you're worth liking. Do you know where I'm from, and not only where I grew up, but where I'm from mentally, emotionally, where my life is? Knowing someone's everyday context and what has and is forming them communicates a sense of understanding that, that they are, in fact, worth knowing. Do you know what I've done? If you know the answer to that question, it says that someone is worth forgiving. And how powerful is it to experience being worth forgiving?
1: Do you know what I can do? The final question is when we can see in each other the spark of potential and believe in it. Not only believe in it, but communicate that they are worth helping, worth investing in. Think about
0: If someone demonstrated that you were worth remembering, worth liking, worth knowing, worth forgiving, and worth helping, how transformative would that be? How transformative has it already been in your life? How transformative would it might be in a world in which 50% of adults in this country don't have one person that they can call in the middle of the night?
1: The ground was cold at this point on the hoodoo that night. The
0: cloudless night had revealed the cosmos to be stars poking out. Had actually helped me settle something within me. I had this sense, looking up at the sky, I was so small. In the dance of nebula, nebula is the slow rotation of constellations, the light that took centuries to arrive to us, I felt the piercing sense of my cosmic smallness. I mean, eventually the entire Earth would be consumed by the sun, and everything would be lit on fire. So it couldn't have been too bad if I pre-gamed a little bit, right? Maybe it was my cosmic insignificance or the time away to regulate my nervous system or that it was getting cold in the desert night, or just the fear of navigating down without a flashlight. Whatever it was, I got up and descended down the hoodoo, making my way back to camp, reticent but resigned. I found everyone, adults and teens, ironically around a campfire. I slipped in without a word, not wanting to make eye contact right away. Soaking up the warmth of the fire, it took me a moment to realize it wasn't just the fire that was embracing. Heather, the same person whose eyes had crucified me hours earlier, turned towards me and handed me a marshmallow. Her eyes still contained splashes of disappointment, but now they contained something else too. And forgive me if I find it hard to articulate what exactly it was, but it was this sense of knowingness. Like she was saying, I love you. What you've done, and more importantly, or like she was saying, I know you, I love you. That what you've done, and more importantly, who you truly are, I know this. I've seen you grow up. I've made those years of investment. And I know you're going to clean up this mess, and it is a mess.
1: But I still love you. All of that
0: seemingly communicated in handing a marshmallow. But of course, that was just the tip of the iceberg of years of connection. My tears freed again, hidden in the flicker of fire. Not tears of fear anymore, but sort of a love-sick grief. No one needs to be known by everyone, but everyone needs to
1: be known by someone. Amen, and blessed be.
0: You know, as I was preaching that, I uh, was just thinking about some of the people in the story and how they communicated that belonging to me how it was formed over years and years of that sedimentary process of one layer of trust added on to another. And I was mostly just feeling really grateful, but also, I assume, really curious. Curious about the stories that you might tell, the people in your life that conveyed that sense of belonging, that sense of connectedness, that sense of you are worth forgiving, that I see something in you. And um, I'd love to hear some of those stories. So maybe just take a moment right now to think about Who would those people be in your life? Who are those people? Who are you in someone else's life? Is there someone that you're really feeling that you might be able to make a big difference in their life if you're to start to build that solid rock foundation of connection now in just the smallest ways? Well, that's it for this episode. I uh, hope you will fill out our survey because we'd love to know more about you. You can find that at foothillsuu.org slash podcast survey. There's a link in the show notes. Uh, Next week, we have a guest who's going to be preaching about how the epidemic of our time is not really a question of mental health, but is a question of belonging. That's uh, Dr. Janita Fariñas, and uh, you're going to want to stick around for that. Thanks for listening, and until next time.